while holding the letter C in one hand and a cookie in the other. For Chuck Thacker, the thrill was indescribable. He knew he had done more than create a novelty. He and his colleagues had reduced the computer to human scale and recast its destiny forever. In 1973, the companies and individuals who were later to be identified with the advent of the personal computer were otherwise engaged. IBM was still turning out electric typewriters. Microsoft's Bill Gates was a freshman entering Harvard. And Steve Jobs, co-founder of Apple Computer, was a college dropout wandering around India. But the Alto had arrived. Compact and powerful, small enough to fit under a desk and simple enough for children to use, it was truly the world's first personal computer. It was also nearly ten years ahead of its time. For the IBM PC and the Apple Macintosh, the first successful commercial expressions of the ideas Park brought to fruition in 1973 did not appear until the 1980s were well underway. Such was the operating standard in the lab where Alto was born. At Xerox Park, the home of one of the most exceptional teams of inventing talent ever assembled in one place, prodigious feats of invention and engineering sprouted as commonly as daisies. Very few are aware that Park pioneered the technology behind today's most exciting innovations. At a critical moment, when the science of computing stood at a crossroads, its future uncharted, Park transformed the machine from a glorified calculator into the marvel of graphical communication it is today. Every time you click a mouse on an icon or open overlapping windows on your computer screen, you are using technology invented at Park. Compose a document by word processor, and your words reach the display via software invented at Park. Make the print larger, replace typewriter letters with a gothic typeface. That's also technology invented at Park, as is the means by which a keystroke speeds the finished document to a laser printer. The laser printer, too, was invented at Park. Surf the Internet. Send email to a workmate. Check your bank account at an ATM equipped with a touch screen. Follow the route of a cold front across the Midwest on a TV weather forecaster's animated map. The pathway to the indispensable technology was blazed by Park. There, too, originated the 3D computer graphics that give life to the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park. How pervasive is Park's technology in today's desktop computer world? When Apple sued Microsoft in 1988 for stealing the look and feel of its Macintosh graphical display to use in Windows, Bill Gates' defense was essentially that both companies had stolen it from Xerox. One of the most unusual and prolific research facilities in history Park was originally conceived as a research lab for a computer subsidiary Xerox had acquired. How it burst those boundaries in the early 1970s to become something more closely resembling a national resource is part of its special mystique. Park was founded by men whose experience had taught them that the only way to get the best research was to hire the best researchers they could find and leave them unburdened by directives, instructions, or deadlines. For the most part, the computer engineers of Park were exempt from corporate imperatives to improve Xerox's existing products. They had a different charge, to lead the company into new and uncharted territory. That Xerox proved only sporadically willing to follow them 
is one of the ironies of this story. The best publicized aspect of Park's history is that its work was ignored by its parent company while earning billions for others. To a certain extent, this is true, yet this relationship is too easily simplified. Park today remains a convenient club with which to beat big business in general, and Xerox in particular, for their sins of corporate myopia and profligacy, even imaginary ones. Xerox was so indifferent to Park that it didn't even patent Park's innovations, one leading business journal informed its readers not long ago, an assertion that would come as a surprise to the team of patent lawyers permanently assigned to Park. Another journal writes authoritatively that the Alto failed as a commercial product. In fact, the Alto was designed strictly as a research prototype, no more destined for marketing as a commercial product than the Mercury space capsule. Another myth is that Xerox never earned any money from Park. In fact, its revenues from one invention alone, the laser printer, have come to billions of dollars, returning its investment in Park many times over. Xerox could certainly have better exploited the manifold technologies issuing from Park in its first 15 years. But whether one company, no matter how visionary, could ever have dominated, much less monopolized technologies as protean as those of digital computing, is a wide-open question. What is indisputable is that Xerox brought together a group of superlatively creative minds at the very moment when they could exert maximal influence on a burgeoning technology and finance their work with unexampled generosity. Bob Taylor would someday become the unlikely impresario of computer science at Park. 1961 found Taylor in Washington, D.C., which he had reached by a circuitous route. After earning a master's degree in sensory psychology at University of Texas, he had briefly taught at a boarding school, then found a job at Martin Aircraft, which was building the mobile missile system known as Pershing. A year later, he jumped to a better-paying post with a Maryland company designing flight simulators. What caught his attention here was the tremendous power of information delivered interactively. Taylor, by lucky coincidence, tried to sell NASA on a research program using one of his simulators to explore a wide variety of sensory inputs. NASA was intrigued by the idea, but even more by its proponent. The agency agreed to fund further work by his company, but only if he joined NASA as the project manager. Not yet out of his twenties, Taylor was in the thick of the most important government crash program since the Manhattan Project. He met with the original seven Mercury astronauts, the era's reigning national heroes, and witnessed space shots firsthand. But such thrills soon paled. We said we were going to the moon, but we were a hell of a long way from getting there, Taylor recalled. It was mostly engineering, and sometimes fairly pedestrian engineering. In 1962, he received an unexpected invitation from the Pentagon to an interagency meeting on computer technology. The summons came from J.C.R. Licklider, an MIT behavioral psychologist who had taken charge of a new program at ARPA, the Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency. Taylor knew Licklider only by his forbidding reputation, which had been forged in the same field, psychoacoustics, in which Taylor had done his master's work. In those days, ARPA did science, not engineering. 
founded in the nationwide panic that followed the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik in 1957, the agency at first focused almost exclusively on missile physics. By 1962, however, when Licklider was tapped to run a new information processing techniques office, or IPTO, ARPA had refocused itself on civilian research in broad scientific areas, some of them having only tenuous relevance to national security. Of course, the Pentagon did expect that the agency's work might lead to solutions of some of its technical problems, such as the issue of command and control, how to employ effectively the immense volume of information generated on a battlefield to manage increasingly elaborate weapon systems. Licklider informed his bosses that the real solution lay in making the machine meet the human halfway. What if the system were designed so that the computer was no longer a mute data manipulator, but a participant in a dialogue, something like a colleague whose competence supplements your own? Every time I had the chance to talk, I said the mission is interactive computing, Licklider said. He promptly allocated most of the money in his budget to its pursuit. A few months after joining ARPA, he convened a summit of government agencies with computer research projects in their budgets. The group encompassed ARPA, NASA, the research arms of the Navy, Army, and Air Force, the National Institutes of Health, and the National Science Foundation. When he opened the session by describing his own very modest program, he left no doubt about who stood at the top of the computer funding pyramid. His $14 million budget, which already supported projects at MIT, Berkeley, and Carnegie Mellon University, was larger than those of all the other agencies combined. Licklider's program launched the golden age of government-funded computing research. Very soon, he had established a full stable of academic scholars entitled to come back to his well whenever a new appropriate line of study struck their fancy, and Licklider defined appropriate broadly. He understood that computer research was young and explosive, every technological innovation inspiring a headlong leap ahead. IPTO accordingly awarded its contracts without any of the bureaucratic paperwork other agencies required. By the time he left IPTO in 1964 to return to MIT, Licklider had set in motion numerous trailblazing projects aimed at making the computer more accessible to the user. Studies in graphics, initiatives in computer networking, new programming languages, and time-sharing systems. His successor, Ivan Sutherland, was a brilliant MIT graduate who had already amassed an enviable research record. Licklider left Sutherland with a $15 million budget, a workload that had grown far beyond what a single man could handle, and a suggested deputy, Bob Taylor. He displayed two qualities Licklider found appealing, an instinctive grasp of the promise of man-computer interaction and an exceptionally high degree of people skills. Next to this, Licklider and Sutherland figured his inability to get down among the bits and electrons was scarcely significant. Ivan Sutherland spent scarcely 18 months at IPTO. Late in 1965, Harvard offered him a tenured position, and by February 1966, Bob Taylor was running IPTO. In contrast to the rigid protocol of the brass, ARPA's civilian chiefs left Taylor undisturbed to fashion his program as he chose. What he chose was distinctly an extension of Licklider's interactivity, time-sharing, graphics,
He also adjusted Licklider's management style to fit his own extroverted personality. Visiting his grant recipients several times a year, he engaged in something akin to community outreach, developing new teams, nurturing up-and-coming young researchers, cultivating an entire new generation of virtuosi. In his first year as director, Taylor organized one of what would become an annual series of nationwide IPTO research conferences held each year at some different and gratifyingly interesting place. One year, Winter might find the group skiing at Park City, Utah. The following year would bring them to New Orleans in time for Mardi Gras. Not that the purpose was chiefly to play. Rather, it was to build a network of people mirroring the one he would soon propose for computers. The daily discussions unfolded in a pattern that remained peculiar to Taylor's management style for the rest of his career. Each participant got an hour or so to describe his work. Then he would be thrown to the mercy of the assembled court. I got them to argue with each other, Taylor recalled. They went at the intellectual roughhouse with unemotional candor, oblivious to everything but the substantiation of truth. He had another motive in fomenting the intellectual free-for-all. It was the best way he knew of gleaning what they were up to. This way I would get insights about their strengths or weaknesses that might otherwise be hidden from me, he said. But it was not to be personal. Impugning a man's thinking was acceptable, but never his character. Taylor strived to create a democracy where everyone's ideas were impartially subject to the group's learned demolition, regardless of the proponent's credentials or rank. The same principle governed the once-a-year ARPA conferences Taylor established for graduate students. Faculty members, and even Taylor himself, were barred from these meetings. His assistant, Barry Wessler, a 23-year-old MIT engineer, was delegated to supervise, receiving no instructions other than to get people together and make something happen. Taylor, meanwhile, was occupied in finding ways to push forward the frontiers of interactive computing. At the time, this meant advancing the technology of time-sharing, because there was simply no other way to pay for the enormous computing resources an interactive system demanded. During his tenure, Licklider had steered most ARPA funding to time-sharing projects of a certain majestic scale, such as MIT's vast Multics program. Taylor encouraged his contractors to embrace smaller-scale projects as well. One of these, Project Genie, was based on the principle that not every university could afford the multi-million dollar mainframe Multics required. Instead, Genie aimed to design a system for no more than 10 or 20 users. If such a small machine could be widely distributed, time-sharing might actually reach many more users.